Chapter Two, Part Two of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay. Volume 1. The South Sea Bubble. Part 2. It is time, however, to return to the great South Sea Gulf that swallowed the fortunes of so many thousands of the avaricious and the credulous. On the 29th of May, the stock had risen as high as 500, and about two-thirds of the government annuitants had exchanged the securities of the state for those of the South Sea Company. During the whole of the month of May, the stock continued to rise, and on the 28th it was quoted at 550. In four days after this, it took a prodigious leap, rising suddenly from 550 to 890. It was now the general opinion that the stock could rise no higher, and many persons took that opportunity of selling out, with a view of realising their profits. Many noblemen and persons in the train of the king, and about to accompany him to Hanover, were also anxious to sell out. So many sellers, and so few buyers, appeared in the alley on the 3rd of June, that the stock fell at once from 890 to 640. The directors were alarmed, and gave their agents orders to buy. Their efforts succeeded. Towards evening confidence was restored, and the stock advanced to 750. It continued at this price, with some slight fluctuation, until the company closed their books on the 22nd of June. It would be needless and uninteresting to detail the various arts employed by the directors to keep up the price of stock. It will be sufficient to state that it finally rose to 1,000%. It was quoted at this price in the commencement of August. The bubble was then full-blown, and began to quiver and shake, preparatory to its bursting. Many of the government annuitants expressed dissatisfaction against the directors. They accused them of partiality in making out the lists for shares in each subscription. Further uneasiness was occasioned by its being generally known that Sir John Blunt, the chairman, and some others, had sold out. During the whole of the month of August the stock fell, and on the 2nd of September it was quoted at 700 only. The state of things now became alarming. To prevent, if possible, the utter extinction of public confidence in their proceedings, the directors summoned a general court of the whole corporation to meet in Merchant Taylor's Hall on the 8th of September. By nine o'clock in the morning the room was filled to suffocation. Cheapside was blocked up by a crowd unable to gain admittance, and the greatest excitement prevailed the directors and their friends mustered in great numbers. Sir John Fellows, the sub-governor, was called to the chair. He acquainted the assembly with the cause of their meeting, read to them the several resolutions of the court of directors, and gave them an account of their proceedings. 
of the taking in the redeemable and unredeemable funds, and of the subscriptions in money. Mr. Secretary Craggs then made a short speech, wherein he commended the conduct of the directors, and urged that nothing could more effectually contribute to the bringing this scheme to perfection than union among themselves. He concluded with a motion for thanking the Court of Directors for their prudent and skilful management, and for desiring them to proceed in such manner as they should think most proper for the interest and advantage of the corporation. Mr. Hungerford, who had rendered himself very conspicuous in the House of Commons for his zeal in behalf of the South Sea Company, and who was shrewdly suspected to have been a considerable gainer by knowing the right time to sell out, was very magniloquent on this occasion. He said that he had seen the rise and fall, the decay and resurrection, of many communities of this nature, but that, in his opinion, none had ever performed such wonderful things in so short a time as the South Sea Company. They had done more than the crown, the pulpit, or the bench could do. They had reconciled all parties in one common interest. They had laid asleep, if not wholly extinguished, all the domestic jars and animosities of the nation. By the rise of their stock, moneyed men had vastly increased their fortunes. Country gentlemen had seen the value of their lands doubled and trebled in their hands. They had at the same time done good to the church, not a few of the reverent clergy having got great sums by the project. In short, they had enriched the whole nation, and he hoped they had not forgotten themselves. There was some hissing at the latter part of this speech, which, for the extravagance of its eulogy, was not far removed from satire, but the directors and their friends, and all the winners in the room, applauded vehemently. The Duke of Portland spoke in a similar strain, and expressed his great wonder why anybody should be dissatisfied. Of course, he was a winner by his speculations, and in a condition similar to that of the fat alderman in Joe Miller's jests, who, whenever he had eaten a good dinner, folded his hands upon his paunch, and expressed his doubts whether there could be a hungry man in the world. Several resolutions were passed at this meeting, but they had no effect upon the public. Upon the very same evening the stock fell to six hundred and forty and on the morrow to five hundred and forty. Day after day it continued to fall, until it was as low as four hundred. In a letter dated September the 13th, from Mr. Broderick, M.P., to Lord Chancellor Middleton, and published in Cox's Walpole, the former says, Various are the conjectures why the South Sea directors have suffered the cloud to break so early. I made no doubt, but they would do so when they found it to their advantage. They have stretched credit so far beyond what it would bear that specie proves insufficient to support it. Their most considerable men have drawn out, securing themselves by the losses of the deluded, thoughtless numbers, whose understandings have been overruled by avarice, and the hope of making mountains out of molehills. Thousands of families will be reduced to beggary. The consternation is inexpressible, the rage beyond description, and the case altogether so desperate that I do not see any plan or scheme so much as thought of for averting the blow, so that I cannot pretend to guess what is next to be done. 
Ten days afterwards, the stock still falling, he writes, The company have yet come to no determination, for they are in such a wood that they know not which way to turn. By several gentlemen lately come to town, I perceive the very name of a South Sea man grows abominable in every country. A great many goldsmiths are already run off, and more will daily. I question whether one-third, nay, one-fourth of them can stand it. From the very beginning I founded my judgment of the whole affair upon the unquestionable maxim that ten millions, which is more than our running cash, could not circulate two hundred millions, beyond which our paper credit extended. That therefore, whenever that should become doubtful, be the cause what it would, our noble state machine must inevitably fall to the ground. On the 12th of September, at the earnest solicitation of Mr. Secretary Craggs, several conferences were held between the directors of the South Sea and the directors of the bank. A report which was circulated, that the latter had agreed to circulate six millions of the South Sea's company's bonds, caused the stock to rise to six hundred and seventy. But in the afternoon, as soon as the report was known to be groundless, the stock fell again to five hundred and eighty, the next day to five hundred and seventy, and so gradually to four hundred. The ministry were seriously alarmed at the aspect of affairs. The directors could not appear in the streets without being insulted. Dangerous riots were every moment apprehended. Dispatches were sent off to the king at Hanover, praying his immediate return. Mr. Walpole, who was staying at his country seat, was sent for that he might employ his known influence with the directors of the Bank of England to induce them to accept the proposal made by the South Sea Company for circulating a number of their bonds. The bank was very unwilling to mix itself up with the affairs of the company. It dreaded being involved in calamities which it could not relieve, and received all overtures with visible reluctance but the universal voice of the nation called upon it to come to the rescue. Every person of note in commercial politics was called in to advise in the emergency. A rough draft of a contract drawn up by Mr. Walpole was ultimately adopted as the basis of further negotiations, and the public alarm abated a little. On the following day, the 20th of September, a general court of the South Sea Company was held at Merchant Taylor's Hall, in which resolutions were carried, empowering the directors to agree with the Bank of England, or any other persons, to circulate the company's bonds, or make any other agreement with the bank which they should think proper. One of the speakers, a Mr. Pulteney, said it was most surprising to see the extraordinary panic which had seized upon the people. Men were running to and fro in alarm and terror, their imaginations filled with some great calamity, the form and dimensions of which nobody knew. Black it stood as night, fierce as ten furies, terrible as hell. At a general court of the Bank of England held two days afterwards, the Governor informed them of the several meetings that had been held on the affairs of the South Sea Company, adding that the directors had not yet thought fit to come to any decision upon the matter. A resolution was then proposed, and carried without a dissentient voice, empowering the directors to agree with those of the South Sea to circulate their bonds, to what sum, and upon what terms, 
and for what time, they might think proper. Thus both parties were at liberty to act as they might judge best for the public interest. Books were opened at the bank for a subscription of three millions for the support of public credit, on the usual terms of a 151% deposit, 31% premium and 51% interest. So great was the concourse of people in the early part of the morning, all eagerly bringing their money, that it was thought the subscription would be filled that day. But before noon the tide turned. In spite of all that could be done to prevent it, the South Sea Company's stock fell rapidly. Their bonds were in such discredit that a run commenced upon the most eminent goldsmiths and bankers, some of whom, having lent out great sums upon South Sea stock, were obliged to shut up their shops and abscond. The Swordblade Company, which had hitherto been the chief cashiers of the South Sea Company, stopped payment. This being looked upon as but the beginning of evil, occasioned a great run upon the bank, who were now obliged to pay out money much faster than they had received it upon the subscription in the morning. The day succeeding was a holiday, the 29th of September, and the bank had a little breathing time. They bore up against the storm, but their former rivals, the South Sea Company, were wrecked upon it. Their stock fell to 150, and gradually, after various fluctuations, to 135. The bank, finding they were not able to restore public confidence and stem the tide of ruin, without running the risk of being swept away with those they intended to save, declined to carry out the agreement into which they had partially entered. They were under no obligation whatever to continue, for the so-called bank contract was nothing more than the rough draft of an agreement, in which blanks had been left for several important particulars, and which contained no penalty for their secession. And thus, to use the words of the parliamentary history, were seen in the space of eight months, the rise, progress, and fall of that mighty fabric, which, being wound up by mysterious springs to a wonderful height, had fixed the eyes and expectations of all Europe, but whose foundation, being fraud, illusion, credulity, and infatuation, fell to the ground as soon as the artful management of its directors was discovered. In the heyday of its blood, during the progress of this dangerous delusion, the manners of the nation became sensibly corrupted, the parliamentary inquiry set on foot to discover the delinquents, disclosed scenes of infamy, disgraceful alike to the morals of the offenders and the intellects of the people among whom they had arisen. It is a deeply interesting study to investigate all the evils that were the result. Nations, like individuals, cannot become desperate gamblers with impunity. Punishment is sure to overtake them sooner or later. A celebrated writer, Smollett, is quite wrong when he says that such an era as this is the most unfavourable for a historian, that no reader of sentiment and imagination can be entertained or interested by a detail of transactions such as these, which admit of no warmth, no colouring, no embellishment, a detail of which only serves to exhibit an inanimate picture of tasteless vice and mean degeneracy. On the contrary, and Smollett might have discovered it, if he had been in the humour, 
The subject is capable of inspiring as much interest as even a novelist can desire. Is there no warmth in the despair of a plundered people, no life and animation in the picture which might be drawn of the woes of hundreds of impoverished and ruined families, of the wealthy of yesterday become the beggars of today, of the powerful and influential changed into exiles and outcasts, and the voice of self-reproach and imprecation resounding from every corner of the land. Is it a dull or uninstructive picture to see a whole people shaking suddenly off the trammels of reason, and running wild after a golden vision, refusing obstinately to believe that it is not real, till, like a deluded hind running after an ignis fatuous, they are plunged into a quagmire? But in this false spirit has history too often been written. The intrigues of unworthy courtiers to gain the favour of still more unworthy kings, or the records of murderous battles and sieges, have been dilated on, and told over and over again, with all the eloquence of style and all the charms of fancy, while the circumstances which have most deeply affected the morals and welfare of the people have been passed over with but slight notice, as dry and dull, and capable of neither warmth nor colouring. During the progress of this famous bubble, England presented a singular spectacle. The public mind was in a state of unwholesome fermentation. Men were no longer satisfied with the slow but sure profits of cautious industry. The hope of boundless wealth for the morrow made them heedless and extravagant for to-day. A luxury, till then unheard of, was introduced, bringing in its train a corresponding laxity of morals. The overbearing insolence of ignorant men, who had arisen to sudden wealth by successful gambling, made men of true gentility of mind and manners blush that gold should have the power to raise the unworthy in the scale of society. The haughtiness of some of these ciphering sits, as they were termed by Sir Richard Steele, was remembered against them in the day of their adversity. In the parliamentary inquiry, many of the directors suffered more for their insolence than for their peculation. One of them, who, in the full-blown pride of an ignorant rich man, had said that he would feed his horse upon gold, was reduced almost to bread and water for himself. Every haughty look, every overbearing speech, was set down, and repaid them a hundredfold in poverty and humiliation. The state of manners all over the country was so alarming that George I shortened his intended stay in Hanover, and returned in all haste to England. He arrived on the 11th of November, and Parliament was summoned to meet on the 8th of December. In the meantime, public meetings were held in every considerable town of the empire, at which petitions were adopted, praying the vengeance of the legislature upon the South Sea directors, who, by their fraudulent practices, had brought the nation to the brink of ruin. Nobody seemed to imagine that the nation itself was as culpable as the South Sea Company. Nobody blamed the credulity and avarice of the people, the degrading lust of gain, which had swallowed up every nobler quality in the national character or the infatuation which had made the multitude run their heads with such frantic eagerness into the net held out for them by scheming projectors. These things were never mentioned. 
The people were a simple, honest, hard-working people, ruined by a gang of robbers, who were to be hanged, drawn, and quartered without mercy. This was the almost unanimous feeling of the country. The two Houses of Parliament were not more reasonable. Before the guilt of the South Sea directors was known, punishment was the only cry. The King, in his speech from the throne, expressed his hope that they would remember that all their prudence, temper, and resolution were necessary to find out and apply the proper remedy for their misfortunes. In the debate on the answer to the address, several speakers indulged in the most violent invectives against the directors of the South Sea Project. The Lord Molesworth was particularly vehement. It had been said by some that there was no law to punish the directors of the South Sea Company, who were justly looked upon as the authors of the present misfortunes of the State. In his opinion, they ought upon this occasion to follow the example of the ancient Romans, who, having no law against parricide, because their legislators supposed no son could be so unnaturally wicked as to imbrue his hands in his father's blood, made a law to punish this heinous crime as soon as it was committed. They adjudged the guilty wretch to be sown in a sack and thrown alive into the Tiber. He looked upon the contrivers and executors of the villainous South Sea scheme as the parricides of their country, and should be satisfied to see them tied in like manner in sacks and thrown into the Thames. Other members spoke with as much want of temper and discretion. Mr. Walpole was more moderate. He recommended that their first care should be to restore public credit. If the City of London were on fire, all wise men would aid in extinguishing the flames, and preventing the spread of the conflagration, before they inquired after the incendiaries. Public credit had received a dangerous wound, and lay bleeding, and they ought to apply a speedy remedy to it. It was time enough to punish the assassin afterwards. On the ninth of December, an address, in answer to His Majesty's speech, was agreed upon, after an amendment, which was carried without a division, that words should be added expressive of the determination of the House, not only to seek a remedy for the national distresses, but to punish the authors of them. The inquiry proceeded rapidly. The directors were ordered to lay before the House a full account of all their proceedings. Resolutions were passed to the effect that the calamity was mainly owing to the vile arts of stock-jobbers, and that nothing could tend more to the re-establishment of public credit than a law to prevent this infamous practice. Mr. Walpole then rose and said that, as he had previously hinted, he had spent some time upon a scheme for restoring public credit, but that the execution of it, depending upon a position which had been laid down as fundamental, he thought it proper, before he opened out his scheme, to be informed whether he might rely upon that foundation. It was whether the subscription of public debts and encumbrances, money subscriptions and other contracts, made with the South Sea Company, should remain in the present state. This question occasioned an animated debate. It was finally agreed by a majority of 259 against 117 that all these contracts should remain in their present state, 
unless altered for the relief of the proprietors by a general court of the South Sea Company, or set aside by due course of law. On the following day, Mr. Walpole laid before a committee of the whole house his scheme for the restoration of public credit, which was, in substance, to engraft nine millions of South Sea stock into the Bank of England, and the same sum into the East India Company, upon certain conditions. The plan was favourably received by the House. After some few objections, it was ordered that proposals should be received from the two great corporations. They were both unwilling to lend their aid, and the plan met with a warm but fruitless opposition at the general courts summoned for the purpose of deliberating upon it. They, however, ultimately agreed upon the terms on which they would consent to circulate the South Sea bonds, and their report being presented to the committee, a bill was brought in under the superintendence of Mr. Walpole, and safely carried through both Houses of Parliament. A bill was at the same time brought in for restraining the South Sea directors, governor, sub-governor, treasurer, cashier, and clerks, from leaving the kingdom for a twelve-month, and for discovering their estates and effects, and preventing them from transporting or alienating the same. All the most influential members of the House supported the bill. Mr. Shippen, seeing Mr. Secretary Craggs in his place, and believing the injurious rumours that were afloat of that minister's conduct in the South Sea business, determined to touch him to the quick. He said he was glad to see a British House of Commons resuming its pristine vigour and spirit, and acting with so much unanimity for the public good. It was necessary to secure the persons and estates of the South Sea directors and their officers. But, he added, looking fixedly at Mr. Craggs as he spoke, there were other men in the high station whom, in time, he would not be afraid to name, who were no less guilty than the directors. Mr. Craggs arose in great wrath, and said that if the innuendo were directed against him, he was ready to give satisfaction to any man who questioned him, either in the house or out of it. Loud cries of order immediately arose on every side. In the midst of the uproar, Lord Molesworth got up, and expressed his wonder at the boldness of Mr. Craggs in challenging the whole House of Commons. He, Lord Molesworth, though somewhat old, past sixty, would answer Mr. Craggs whatever he had to say in the House, and he trusted there were plenty of young men beside him who would not be afraid to look Mr. Craggs in the face out of the House. The cries of order again resounded from every side, the members arose simultaneously. Everybody seemed to be vociferating at once. The speaker in vain called order. The confusion lasted several minutes, during which Lord Molesworth and Mr. Craggs were almost the only members who kept their seats. At last the call for Mr. Craggs became so violent that he thought proper to submit to the universal feeling of the House and explain his unparliamentary expression. He said that, by giving satisfaction to the impugners of his conduct in that house, he did not mean that he would fight, but that he would explain his conduct. Here the matter ended, and the House proceeded to debate in what manner they should conduct their inquiry into the affairs of the South Sea Company, whether in a grand or a select committee. 
Ultimately, a secret committee of thirteen was appointed, with power to send for persons, papers, and records. The lords were as zealous and as hasty as the commons. The Bishop of Rochester said the scheme had been like a pestilence. The Duke of Wharton said the House ought to show no respect of persons, that, for his part, he would give up the dearest friend he had, if he had been engaged in the project. The nation had been plundered in a most shameful and flagrant manner, and he would go so far as anybody in the punishment of the offenders. Lord Stanhope said that every farthing possessed by the criminals, whether directors or not directors, ought to be confiscated to make good the public losses. During all this time the public excitement was extreme. We learn from Cox's Walpole, that the very name of a South Sea director was thought to be synonymous with every species of fraud and villainy. Petitions from counties, cities, and boroughs in all parts of the kingdom were presented, crying for the justice due to an injured nation, and the punishment of the villainous peculators. Those moderate men, who would not go to extreme lengths, even in the punishment of the guilty, were accused of being accomplices, were exposed to repeated insults and virulent invectives, and devoted, both in anonymous letters and public writings, to the speedy vengeance of an injured people. The accusations against Mr. Aislaby, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Mr. Craggs, another member of the Ministry, were so loud that the House of Lords resolved to proceed at once into the investigation concerning them. It was ordered on the 21st of January that all brokers concerned in the South Sea scheme should lay before the House an account of the stock or subscriptions bought or sold by them for any of the officers of the Treasury or Exchequer, or in trust for any of them, since Michaelmas 1719. When this account was delivered, it appeared that large quantities of stock had been transferred to the use of Mr. Aislaby. Five of the South Sea directors, including Mr. Edward Gibbon, the grandfather of the celebrated historian, were ordered into the custody of the Black Rod. Upon a motion made by Earl Stanhope, it was unanimously resolved that the taking in or giving credit for stock without a valuable consideration actually paid or sufficiently secured, or the purchasing stock by any director or agent of the South Sea Company for the use or benefit of any member of the administration, or any member of either House of Parliament, during such time as the South Sea Bill was yet pending in Parliament, was a notorious and dangerous corruption. Another resolution was passed a few days afterwards, to the effect that several of the directors and officers of the company, having, in a clandestine manner, sold their own stock to the company, had been guilty of a notorious fraud and breach of trust, and had thereby mainly caused the unhappy turn of affairs that had so much affected public credit. Mr. Aislaby resigned his office as Chancellor of the Exchequer, and absented himself from Parliament, until the formal inquiry into his individual guilt was brought under the consideration of the legislature. End of section 5 End of chapter 2, part 2